welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 51, part two. We really should have gone back to the room. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on to reInvent announcements. And this gets the fun stuff. So first of all, we have Sunday Night Midnight Madness. Uh, this is the first uh, conference or the first session of the week. And this is on Sunday night for the first 7,000 attendees. Uh, I've never actually been to this part of the event. Uh, but uh, they, you know, all kinds of cool things came out, including uh, SQL Bring Your Own Licensing, Amazon Transcribe Medical. Uh, but my winning point uh, came out here at the Sunday night with the Amazon Deep Composer. Uh, you can now compose music with generative machine learning models. Uh, this is the world's first machine learning-enabled musical keyboard. Uh, and this is the third tool for learning ML after the Deep Lens and the Deep Racer. Uh, Deep Composer is a 32-key, two-octave keyboard designed for developers to get hands-on with generative AI. Uh, you can buy the Deep Composer for $99 on Amazon. Or, if you know the secret, it's just a MIDI keyboard. So you can just pay half the price <laughs> and get the MIDI keyboard that does exactly the same thing. Uh, there are several pre-trained models after you kind of build, you know, write your little uh, musical tones, uh, including a classical, jazz, rock, or pop. Uh, or you can create your own model uh, of your own design, and it'll then generate music uh, for your musical enjoyment. I find it so strange that they went with a, with a product, a physical product, which isn't even required to run the Deep Composer service. It's weird. I mean, I guess it looks kind of cool on stage and everything, but why? I, I think people would have been like, why didn't you give us a keyboard with it? <laughs> it was the other way around. So I think they, <laughs> they lose either way. I, I think the... 100% markup on the keyboard is where people are mostly grumpy about it. Because the only difference between this keyboard and a generic you can find on Amazon.com is the AWS logo. It is a whole bunch of people that want to do machine learning on music, and so they're not necessarily going to have like a music studio full of MIDI-capable devices at their, you know, at their, uh, blanking on the word. But, I mean, uh, also, if you go to the console, uh, there's a virtual keyboard on the screen. I can just push the keys if I want to, so... And that makes no sense then. No, it, it doesn't. And it, it, it also didn't have a camera, but I'll let that fly. <laughs> well, that's because the next part does have a camera. <laughs> so the uh, other part was the Deep Racer update. Uh, the new Deep Racer Evo uh, is now perceptive and more powerful, including a stereo camera and LiDAR sensor. Uh, this will allow Evo to, Evo to skillfully detect and respond to obstacles, including other deep racers. Uh, the virtual version of this will be available in your garage uh, very soon, as well as the new car will be available in early 2020, uh, which hopefully they get this one shipped out before reInvent this time around. <laughs> uh, the Deep Racer League is expanding to additional eight races in five countries as part of the expanded summit presence. Uh, and there's there, we have two new uh, race league challenges, including object detection and avoidance and a head-to-head -head racing, uh, which will hopefully make it a little bit more exciting to watch. Because uh, just watching one car race around the track uh, with a guy in socks running around after it is not so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but they are the most comfortable socks you've ever seen. <laughs> that is true. The other thing they mentioned on Sunday Night Live was the Identify Unintended Resource Access with Amazon Identity and Access Management Analyzer. Uh, the analyzer uses mathematics to analyze access control policies, attach resources, and determine which resources can be accessed publicly or from other accounts. Uh, continuously monitors all policies for S3 buckets, IAM roles, KMS keys, AWS Lambda functions, and Amazon SQS. Uh, and all this gets pumped into the security hub, and all of this is available to you for free. So you're welcome. Pretty soon we won't have to do anything, will we? 
it uses mathematics. Huh? That's, that's <laughs> so I, yeah, I've been suspecting that they're going to do something like this because they've they've done other announcements that are similar, right? Where they talk about mathematically proving their compliance and yeah, that was a big talk at uh, Reinforce. Reinforce, right? Attended and where they were talking about this. Yeah, so it was it was uh, you know this is pretty cool. I, I, for me, you know, the use will just be having the metrics around this, like where you can actually just look at, oh, look, this hasn't been used in forever, that kind of thing. But I am interested to see how this actually has, you know, comes into play, how it's actually used once getting getting my hands on it and play with it. You know, one of the questions on my uh, solutions architect to practice exam, you find, uh, you find an IM role which hasn't been used in a while. What should you do with it? And the right answer, according to I think it was a cloud guru, was basically delete it. <laughs> and I, I, I question whether that's actually the right thing to do. I guess it would help us find those those things that that haven't been used or been used to do things that we didn't expect them to be used for. And it's, it's I guess it's kind of similar in a way to the CloudTrail insights, uh, except it's the sort of before you use the permissions and get to CloudTrail, uh, it's, it analyzes that data. So I, I, perhaps I'll tie both of those services in together to help us fix, you know, point to where in the IAM policies these um, aberrant behaviors which appeared in CloudTrail actually came from. Yeah, I would uh, answer the question how you need to to pass the test, but I would recommend doing something non-destructive like adding a deny star policy that you can always just remove again. And once you find out what you just broke, much easier to fix. <laughs> Final announcement of Sunday night is a the automated OS image build pipeline with EC2 Image Builder. Uh, this is a service that makes it easier and faster to build and maintain secure OS images for Windows Server and Amazon Linux 2 uh, using an automated pipeline. Uh, the images are created, can be used on-premises or in the cloud, and can be secured and hardened to help comply with applicable InfoSec regulations. Uh, the pipeline lets you include the image recipe, infrastructure configurations, distribution, and test settings to produce the resulting images. Uh, and this includes the ability to automatically provision images as new software updates, including security patches, become available. Uh, but overall, I think this is a really great feature. A lot of people were building this capability, including ourselves. Uh, so we were Sherlocked here, but that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, my biggest complaint with this is that where was it four years ago, five years ago? Like, <laughs> when they should have built it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how long has how long has Packer been around for? Seriously, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not rocket science. It's really not. Um, and you know, this is it's it's missing some of the more sophisticated things that uh, a multi-account strategy would need. Like you could, while you can share across, or while you can provide launch permissions across several accounts, it's not the same thing as as administrating it. The the created AMI centrally, it's it's a little bit wonky with how they deal with the multi-account strategy. And then you know there's the testing and stuff, which has its bugs and its rough edges. But this is a great start. Tons of people need this. It'll be for anyone who's starting. You know they probably shouldn't be using EC2, but uh, if they're starting their cloud journey, they you know this is a great a great way that they can build those AMIs. Yeah. I remember some of the, some of the questions from the audience in the repeat session of this, later in the week, was like Thursday, I think, where things like, well, what if I add another account to my organization? How do I how do I go back and make it share the, the, the AMI with, with that account? That's a that's a fantastic point. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the thing that, that I noticed was you can set tags on the on the built artifacts but once you've shared those well, shared the images to other accounts the tags are no longer visible tags belong to the account tags belong to the source account and so you, you can tag it all you like with with names and version numbers and all that useful stuff that's going to be completely visible in all the accounts you share it with so you really have to rely on a 
a structured name of every image in order to um, uh, to find it with any kind of automation in the other accounts. Yeah. The thing that was that I don't really know if they're going to fix was the, the exporting to an on-premise. Like it is sort of like it's not really built into the tool. Like once the AMI exists, you can export it, but you've always been able to do that. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a weird mention. I think they were just <laughs> you can use it to build on-prem. Yeah, kinda. make it look a bit a bit cooler than it really was. Or just natively put a thing in a bucket. I'd be happy with an OVF in a bucket. I've moved bunches of images to Amazon, but never back the other way. It's something I should actually have a play with. Yeah. But they don't have a build-your-own-container service yet, do they? No, they do not. I mean, they have... I mean, CodeBuild builds containers, so technically well, they do, I guess. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, I guess it does, but not quite the same. Uh, moving on to uh, Monday night. There's actually very few announcements on Monday night. Uh, typically, they have a couple good, like, easy-to-type instances uh, they announced on Monday night, but they did not this year. The one thing they did announce, though, was the Amazon Bracket service. Uh, this is a service for exploring and evaluating quantum computing. Uh, it makes it easy for scientists, researchers, and developers to build, test, and run quantum computing algorithms. Uh, Bracket helps you get started learning about quantum computing by providing a development environment to build quantum algorithms, test them on simulated quantum computers, and run them on your choice of different hardware tech. Uh, the quantum hardware providers include D-Wave, Ionic, and Rigetti, uh, all accessed through a simple user experience. Uh, so I guess this is why they built that uh, future-proof uh, SSL certificates we talked about a couple weeks ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I'm going to both look into it and not look into it at the same time. Very <laughs> good. <laughs> well, well done. I'm going to win the lightning round points, even though if we don't have a lightning round. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we yeah. currently offer access to gate-based supercomputers from Rigetti, quantum annealing from D-Wave and Ion. Over time, we plan to add more choices to give you the opportunity to test a wider variety of technology types and other providers than various categories. So there's definitely, I think the simulator just means that it's not something you can do at scale. And it's on top of this hardware, but it's a simulator. Public pricing will be available when it's GA. So yeah. we'll, know. we'll know in the future. I mean, if, if you could write a simulator that simulated quantum computers that did the same thing, we wouldn't need the quantum computers. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yes, there are, there are hardware constraints to actually being able to simulate these things. Uh, all right, moving on to uh, the main event, Tuesday's anti-Jassy keynote. Mm-hmm. Uh, any comments on uh, Mr. Jassy's uh, presentation this time? He, uh, he brought the house band back, which I could have done without. <sighs> I don't like the house band. I, I am not a fan. Such a missed opportunity. If you're going to you know, have a machine learning musical device that will provide you know, song and accompaniment, you could have replaced the house band with it. I would have been okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have been any better, but <laughs> uh, but the the worst part was that you know he played the song, which you know the house band would play the song, and then he would read the lyrics to us. <laughs> I just heard them sing it. I don't need you to read me the lyrics. But thanks, thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Once more with feeling, Andy. Yes, once more. <laughs> All right. Well, this one, uh, we have similar categories uh, like we did in the pre-invention uh, show. Uh, the But we have a new category here called New Things. Uh, so the first one of uh, the New Things is the new Amazon Kendra service. Oh, by the way, I did learn that uh, officially that if it is Amazon, it was built by the Amazon.com team and then turned into a service by AWS. If it's an AWS service, it's built by the AWS team and turned into a service by AWS. Yeah. Uh, just, oh. I, have con- I have that confirmed. From an Amazonian, so there you go. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, which cool. is what I, which is what I always assumed was the case, but uh, no one had ever told me for sure. So. But why? I, I, I mean, I, that's that's nice to know. But why don't they? Why do they brand it that way publicly? I mean, that's that's an internal choice, I guess. Wh- wh- who developed it? So why why brand it that way publicly? Pride. <laughs> there, there's a lot of teams that are very proud of these services. 
Uh, well, the first one, Amazon Kendra, uh, is reinventing enterprise search uh, with machine learning. Uh, Kendra is a highly accurate and easy-to-use enterprise search service powered by machine learning. Uh, Kendra provides a more intuitive way to search using natural language and returns more accurate answers so your end users can discover information stored within the vast amount of content spread across your company. Uh, Kendra Preview is available as a console app as well as via the API, and it today has connections for SharePoint Online, S3, and databases, um, or you can use the Kendra API to ingest data from other data sources. Uh, once it's generally available, it would also support connectors for Box, Dropbox, Salesforce, and OneDrive. Uh, so this is your, your Google Enterprise Search Appliance solution from AWS. Uh, that'll be a little bit better than cloud search, hopefully. Hopefully, it's not just indexing documents. It's it's you can query them using natural language, so it's kind of getting into the the Watson territory. Yeah, they were using um, some examples in the in the press release about you know ask like hey what what's the sick leave policy right? You just ask that simple question and it it you know pulls the relevant data from all the different documents and presents it to you, so you can see right then what the policy is based on the documents that it has access to. Yeah, I wonder if um, I wonder if Kendra will help uh, make Alexa better. Alexa, ask ask Kendra. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have like a fleet of you know Amazon names to ask. The other uh, Amazon feature, the Amazon Fraud Detector, uh, is now in preview. Uh, fraud is a fully managed service that makes it easy to identify potentially fraudulent online activities, such as online payment fraud and the creation of fake accounts. Uh, fraud Detector uses machine learning and 20 years of fraud detection expertise from AWS and Amazon.com to automatically identify potentially fraudulent activities so you can catch more fraud faster. Uh, this is available to you in the preview in the U.S. East environment. Uh, if you're curious. Huge area of third-party software here. And if the banks are able to switch to this, um, I don't know if they released pricing yet, but this could be a boon if it's one of those, you're basically just paying for the hardware, underlying hardware, um, for a lot of budgets in the banking industry. So how does a service like this work? Am I sending like the message payload and it's telling me whether it's legit or not like I, i've it was the one thing i never really understood is it what is it actually doing the analysis on to detect fraud uh so you upload the transactions uh to the service yeah so it says to get started with amazon fraud detector in five steps one upload your historical fraud data set to amazon s3 step two select from pre-built fraud detection model templates step three model templates use your historical data as input to build a custom model the model template inspects and enriches data performs feature and engineering selects algorithms trains and tunes your model and hosts the model Step four, create rules to either accept, review, or collect more information based on model predictions. And step five, call the Amazon Fraud Detector API from your online application to receive real-time fraud predictions and take action based on your configured detection rules. For example, in an e-commerce application, you can send an email and IP address and receive a fraud score as well as the other output from your rule. That's how it works. Yeah, that's good. Okay. That's good. I like it because I've always, awesome. I've always liked things like, um, you know, you log into a Google account, you log into some account, and it says, hey, we noticed something different about the login this time. It's from a different IP or a different location or something, you know, different new browser, that kind of thing. And they, they ask for additional security in those cases. So this being, being sort of commoditizing that type of uh, technology is really cool. So the pricing on this, uh, since you had to ask, uh, model training and model hosting is $0.39 cents per hour or $0.06 cents per hour for model hosting. Online fraud insights, the first 400,000 will cost you $0.03 cents per prediction for real-time online fraud insights, and then they scale as you increase them. Uh, Rule-based fraud prediction with no machine learning uh, the is uh, half a penny uh, for the first 400,000, and then scales as you go. So not exactly a cheap service. Not super, super cheap. Um, you know, the example they had here was 10 compute hours times two trainings times $0.39 cents per compute hour, $7.80. The hosting was... Uh, one model times 0.6% compute hour, 
24 hours and 30 days, is $43.20, and then 1,000 predictions a day times 30 days times 0 0.03 was $900. Uh, I'm sure that's still very much cheaper than <laughs> any Tens of the commercial of products. <laughs> yeah. Tens yes. of millions. Fair point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know this is a separate service rather than just encouraging people to use the existing machine learning tools to, to build their own models. Access to the data set is the power part of it there. Because you know, the SageMaker just gives you the ability to run it on your own data, but now they're combining it with Amazon's data and Amazon's fraud detection capabilities, which are much more extensive than maybe yours are. I'm sure uh, they are, yeah. <laughs> it'd be interesting to see how this starts getting pulled into other services, because you can see where this would get pulled into something like Incognito um, very quickly, and then you know do that thing you mentioned about Google, where, it, you know, hey, you're logging in from a new location on a laptop I never recognized before. Um, those type of things become really interesting. Well, I'll give you the, the perfect example. You know, we were in uh, living in Australia, buying stuff for aunts, uh, for nieces and nephews all over the U.S. from stores all over the U.S. So our purchase pattern was crazy, but still, we got one call from our bank about a like a three ninety nine purchase from a Toys R Us in Oklahoma, and we had to go check to make sure we didn't buy that, and it was the one fraudulent one that was like a. Uh, a tester to see if our card was was working from whoever got our card number, and boom, card was shut off before anything bad happened. <laughs> well, I think we had issues last year reinvent with credit cards being denied or blocked at a uh, at a liquor store. <laughs> Oops! <laughs> like, no, really, you don't need any more. Uh, apparently, yeah. apparently, because of fraud detection, the banks obviously didn't know us well enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly didn't know you well enough. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, AWS Wavelength is uh, the next announcement here, a new product. Uh, this enables developers to build applications that deliver single digit millisecond latencies to mobile devices and users via the 5G network. Uh, AWS Compute and Storage will be located within the telecommunication provider's data centers at the edge of the 5G network and seamlessly access the breadth of Amazon services in the region. Uh, Verizon is their launch partner on this product, uh, and this is uh, going to be a pretty big game changer for the 5G adoption curve. Yeah, this is huge. This, this is going to bring so much new business to Amazon, I think, with mobile gaming um, taking off. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what it looks like pricing-wise and everything as it gets a little bit closer. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty impressive capability that as 5G becomes more ubiquitous over the next uh, few years here, that it'll become a big, big deal. Yeah, uh, It also partnered with uh, Vodafone and KDDI and SK Telecom, so if you're international, those will be your providers, uh, and Verizon as your U.S. provider. So uh, for international folks, I didn't forget about you. It's cool because we've talked about what the edge really is quite a few times, mm -hmm. and uh, this really is the edge. So, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the next one is the Amazon Code Guru. Uh, this is a new machine learning service for development teams who want to automate code reviews, identify the most expensive lines of code in their app, and receive intelligent recommendations on how to fix or improve their code. 
Uh, code reviewer detects and flags wide-ranging issues in source code, such as thread safety issues, use of unsanitized inputs, inappropriate handling of sensitive data and resource leaks, and then also detects deviations from best practices for using Amazon APIs, such as uh, flagging common issues that lead to production issues, such as detection of missing pagination or error handling in batch operations. And the profiler is an application performance optimization capability that uh, allows you to fix issues such as excessive recreation of expensive objects, extensive deserialization operations, and usage of inefficient libraries and excessive logging. Uh, in production, so those are pretty great uh, features. This is one that's a little bit pricey, uh, to be fair to it. Right now, I think it uh, is uh, a bit pro problematic for a very large code base, uh, but I assume the pricing will come down as they get a little bit more, uh, you know, understanding what this thing does. It's uh, 75 cents per 100 lines of code scanned uh, per month, and a code scan is a pull request. Uh, as well as the application profiling uh, for that is uh, 0.005 per sampling hour for the first uh, 36,000 sampling hours per app. Seems expensive until you uh, run into API limits on your account and you need to quickly find what's chewing them all up. <laughs> I, I got a question about this really, especially around the lines of code thing. I, I know there's been lots of complaints around Twitter and everything about lines of code and encouraging developers to think about optimizing their code in bizarre ways just to reduce the number of lines, and I completely agree with that. I guess they have to charge for the effort it takes to analyze the code, but my, my biggest question, which I haven't seen answered yet, is you know, if, if you're analyzing a piece of code and you've imported an external dependency, a library of some kind, are they also scanning the dependency that you're using, or are they just scanning exactly what's in your repo? And if they're only scanning what's in the repo, then, then how, how are they actually doing a, doing a comprehensive analysis on the code? Because 75, if you submit 100 lines of code that's imported, you know, a Python module or something, that could be thousands of lines of code, which you're now paying for. So I don't know. It's, it's uh, Yeah, I definitely have questions around this. Yeah, overall, I really like this, uh, although I'm a little afraid of it. You know, not only is my IDE going to light me up on every syntax error in my code, but now I'm going to have this machine learning telling all the other ways my code sucks. I suppose that'll make me better eventually, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I guess it's a great opportunity for Amazon to, to tell you, hey, you could be doing this a different way. You could be, I see you reaching out to this database here. Why don't you use RDS? I see you're doing this. Why don't you use this? Uh, I, I look forward to being pulled into our performance review system. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then the, uh, the last new uh, capability is the new UltraWarm preview uh, for Amazon Elasticsearch service. Uh, UltraWarm is a fully managed, low-cost, warm storage tier for Amazon Elasticsearch service. Uh, this takes a new approach to providing hot, warm tiering, offering up to 900 terabytes of storage, almost a 90% cost reduction over existing options. Uh, it's a seamless extension to the Elasticsearch service, enabling you to query and visualize across both hot and ultra-warm data, all from your familiar Kibana interface. Uh, the hot tier is, of course, used for indexing, updating, and providing fast access to data, while the ultra-warm complements the hot tier by adding support for high volumes of older, less frequently accessed data to enable you to take advantage of a lower storage cost. Uh, this is available in preview in US East 1 and US West 2. Which sounds better, ultra-warm or frozen? <laughs> because frozen indexes are what Elasticsearch call virtually the same thing, but ultra warm sounds like it's you know faster and smoother and more comfortable. But I mean, I, I think, it also I sounds like my, uh, uh, well, well, yeah, it won't go there. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> ultra warm, all I can think about is like your hand. You know, you went to a sleepover and someone put your hand in a thing of warm water in a bowl. Yeah, really. That's all. That's, uh, for some reason, that's the connotation that comes to mind for me. I don't know why. Yeah, I went to, straight to ultra violence. Oh yeah, that was yeah. There used to be a really bad uh, video format called Ultraviolet, too, that this reminds me of. Oh, yeah, I've still got those inserts on my DVDs. Hey, get this free free on Ultraviolet. Never downloaded anything. Service, service went away. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're much, much too late. 
Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities or custom integrations, and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Bloomadora introduces Bindplane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. Bindplane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bloomadora.com slash cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Bloomadora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plain. Seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. And then uh, moving on to enhancements of existing stuff, uh, we're breaking this into categories again with the infra platform coming up first. Uh, the first one are the inference instances, the new EBS direct APIs for snapshot content, uh, the Transit Gateway Network Manager to centrally manage your thing. You can now do multicast workloads in cloud using the Transit Gateway. And then the first one we're going to talk about is the new Graviton True Power General Purpose Compute Optimize and Memory Optimize EC2 instances. Uh, of course, last year they announced the A1 ARM-based processor, which was Jonathan's favorite announcement. Uh, these were Graviton-powered ARM EC2 instances. And this year they're announcing Graviton 2. Uh, this is a 7 nanometer manufacturing process for a 64-bit ARM Neoverse core and can deliver up to 7x the performance of the A1 instance, including twice the floating point performance, additional memory channels, and double size per core cache speeds, access up to 5x. Uh, they are coming in the general purpose M6G and M6GD, the compute C6G and C6GD, and the memory optimized R6 and R6GD. Uh, and these are available from 1 to 64 CPU, vCPUs and up to as much as 512 gigs of memory on the memory optimized boxes. Um, all of the Graviton 2 will have a 25 gigabit of network bandwidth, uh, 18 gigabits per second of EBS optimized bandwidth, and will also be available to you in bare metal form. And right now you can get the M6G instances for testing non-production workloads uh, in preview today uh, before they roll this out in a big way in 2020. So pretty impressive updates to ARM. And Intel continue to be huge sponsors of reInvent and <laughs> the replay party. Yeah. It's, um, it must be so painful for them right now. They're struggling with their own fabrication plants and coming across news like this, it's like the beginning of their no good, very bad day. Well, I, I think the, the bigger no good, very bad day part is the fact that these are called the M6, the C6, and the R6, uh, which would be the predecessor, you know, the next generation of the M5, C5, and R5 line. Mm. Uh, so this tells me that they're thinking ARM is going to become the predominant uh, instance type in the future. Yeah, super excited. Low power, better performance. I was kind of hoping for both a compute and memory optimized instance, but you know, maybe that will come one day. <laughs> well, it's not the general. That's kind of like the general purpose. I guess so. Uh, the next one, I don't really actually understand that well, but hopefully you guys do. Uh, this is the managing of shared data sets with Amazon S3 access points. Uh, this is a new way to manage data access at scale for shared data sets in S3. Uh, Amazon S3 access points are unique host names with dedicated access policies that describe how data can be accessed using the endpoint. Uh, before S3 access points, shared access data meant managing a single policy document on a bucket, and these policies prevent hundreds of apps with many differing positions, making audits and updates a potential bottleneck affecting many systems. Uh, a bucket will have, can have multiple access points now, and each access point will have its own IAM policy. Access point policies are similar to bucket policies, but associated with the access point. Uh, and all uh, access points have a unique DNS name, uh, and you can address your bucket 
uh, with as any name that you want to, as long as it's unique to the AWS account and region. So this is separating simple bucket names from DNS, which is nice. Uh, and I sort of understand the gist of it, but I don't quite understand why it's quite so revolutionary. So maybe you guys can educate me this time around. I don't know if it's revolutionary. You, you, there were already um, policies you could apply to the S3 gateway in a VPC. So it, it kind of seems just like an extension of that, really, except now you, now you can add friendly names. I think the difference may be in the way that it does region support, because the gateways didn't do anything outside the, the native region of where, where the instance of the VPC resided, but maybe the access points do. I think you need to clarify that. Yeah, so I mean, if you think about the use cases where you have a giant data lake, where n not necessarily all your data is, you know, in this organized key format where you can actually index and set policies based on key names, this has become this becomes really really powerful. So each each application that's accessing your data lake can get its own access policy, and that access policy doesn't necessarily need to be set by a bucket or by a, a key structure. And so that's really what you what you get. And then you can individually manage those as time goes on, too, without affecting the other applications. And so this is, I think this will change the way that we access S3 in a lot of ways. This is one of those announcements that I think is going to turn into a much bigger deal as people start applying this, um, just because it's per app uh, permissions to your data in S3 instead of per bucket or per account. Couldn't you have done that with IAM access controls, though? Based on what? key format or bucket name this is you know like you couldn't you're like you know it's a little bit uh it would be clunky but but you can yeah. still you can still set things by path by, by and only if you're i am authenticated against your data set which you don't have to be for s3 so as, i mean i hear what they're saying about the doc the, the bucket policy being long <laughs> and complicated from an auditing and you can easily make a mistake uh that would mess up your bucket permissioning um, in the policy, but I feel like having potentially hundreds of access points pointing to the same bucket is the same problem, just worse. Because huh. now it's now it's a distributed problem versus a centralized problem. Well, I mean, I guess the other problem with bucket policies or any policies in general is just the limit on the maximum size of the policy. Oh, sure. And so by breaking it out into multiple policies and, and calling it separate access points for separate roles, uh, it sort of expands ha the uh, what, you know what you can stick into each policy now. Yeah. Well, if if someone out there thinks we're missing something on this, uh, I'd love to know because I talked to several people on the conference and they were all really jazzed and said this is a game changer and going to change the way we do things. And I, I, Well, I get it. I, I don't get it. <laughs> so if there's a listener out there who gets it, I would love to hear from you at the uh, cloudpod.net website. All right. Uh, Amazon has a new uh, local zone in Los Angeles. Uh, this is a, a local zone is basically a reduced set of infrastructure in a specific uh, geographic city area. Uh, these select services there would be something like EBS and EC2. Uh, and the local zone is designed to provide a very low latency, single digit millisecond to apps that are accessed from Los Angeles and other parts of Southern California. The LA local zones are a logical part of US West 2, uh, which is the parent region. And they are called this terrible name US-West-2-LAX-1A. Uh, I assume eventually maybe one B and one C as well, so it gets bigger. Uh, you must opt in to use local zone. It is not enabled by default if you're in the US West 2 region, uh, but this is a new capability they are testing out to bring compute to you with a much less uh, overhead of a large region. Uh, so this is kind of interesting. Wow. Then the thing I noticed most about this is that the US West 1 data center is much closer to LA than US West 2. And so <laughs> it's, it's not the parent, and it's not the parent region. It's yeah, not the parent the region. Yeah, so this is a this is a nail in the coffin for for the San Francisco data center, I guess. But um, 
it looks very outpost like doesn't it the way the way outposts always extensions of a local region it looks uh I think maybe maybe outposts all along were designed for the local zone and perhaps even for the Amazon wavelength service. Yeah, it's very possible that this is, um, you know, outpost has many, many different ways it can attack the market. Uh, local zone being one for smaller regions, like, you know, you know, they've already announced large regions in Indonesia and different places, but there's other places in the, in the world that maybe they don't want to build out a full region. They want to build out something small, test the market, and then build it out from there. Um, be interesting to see. I wonder if the fact that there's a parent region um, messes with some of the data sovereignty concerns, uh, which makes it not quite perfect. Because they do also have a local region um, in, isn't it in Tokyo, I believe, uh, or in Japan, in Saka, that's a local region, uh, which is not really clear to me how a local region is different than a local zone. Uh, but you know, hopefully they'll clarify that in the future. Hmm. I'm curious to see how the pricing is going to work out. I don't think they've announced pricing yet on local zones. They did say it will be priced separately than the main zone, so it will not match the pricing of the parent, but they did not announce pricing of the local zone yet. I want to know higher or lower. <laughs> I'm going to say it's probably higher. Economies <laughs> of scale, I think. <laughs> well, and, and the fact that you know Oregon gets gets fed by a lot of very cheap hydroelectric power dams on the Columbia River, uh, where that would not be the case down in L.A. Yeah. So. Uh, and then uh, Peter's uh, winning point here, the Amazon Outpost now available, order yours today. Uh, they are now ready for your data center or colo facility. Uh, each outpost is connected to and controlled by a specific region. Uh, the region treats a collection of up to 16 racks as a single location as a unified capacity pool. Uh, and they said that the 16 is the intro. They eventually plan to be able to support thousands of racks, uh, but they're not there yet. So the initial launch only supports 16. Uh, an outpost rack, if you're thinking about putting this in your data center, is 80 inches tall, uh, which is a little bit taller than a traditional 42U rack. Uh, 24 inches wide and 40 inches deep and can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. Uh, they do arrive fully assembled and rolled in on casters, ready for connection to power and networking. <clears throat> the, each outpost supports multiple Intel-powered Nitro-based EC2 instances types, including C5, M5, R5, G4, and I3EN. And you can get uh, EBS storage there with a minimum size of 2.7 terabytes. And each outpost has a pair of networking devices, each with 400 gigabits of connectivity and support for 1 gig E, 10 gig over Ethernet, 40 gig over Ethernet, and 100 gigabit fiber connections. Uh, a slash 26 cider block is attached to each outpost, uh, which is advertised as a slash 27 to protect against device network failures. And if you have Cisco or Juniper gear to connect to this, uh, they have several handy guides for you to make that connection happen. Uh, and they support on these outposts EC2, EBS, VPC, uh, ECS, EKS, EMR, and coming soon, RDS for Postgres and MySQL. Uh, from the parent region, you can also leverage things like S3, Dynamo, autoscaling, CloudFormation, etc., um, all uh, orchestrating the local outpost in your system. Uh, you must have enterprise support to purchase an outpost, uh, and you can set them up with a, uh, you know, basically there's a various sizes of instances you can have. Uh, the way this is priced in the pricing sheet is it uh, will say like one M5 24X large, that's the maximum size of a VM you can have, uh, but you can have anything smaller than that inside that particular host. And so like this setup here that I priced here for the CloudPod was uh, one M5 24X large, uh, one C5 24X large, one R5 24X large on 11 terabytes of local storage, uh, and it's going to cost me a cool $483,000 if I want to pay for it all up front, or I can pay $15,000 per month uh, with a no upfront commitment. Uh, and Peter, this is arriving at your offices in the city. <laughs> Uh, next week nice. with the bill. I can't wait. <laughs> well, getting up that staircase is going to be tough. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, also, you'll have to probably invest in some air conditioning because I think it's going to generate some heat. I might need to borrow a couple of those little furniture sliders if you've got some. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Great. I have some extension cords we can use as well. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this is finally here. I'll post only a year after they announced it. Uh, so I'm surprised. It looks pretty. It looks super cool, actually. But um, I'm surprised they didn't add a little S3, little block storage in there too. They did say that was going to come in the future. It just isn't in the initial uh, launch. I mean, right? They have a solution for that right now. Anyway, you can get a snowball. You and yes, you can. You can couple this with a snowball. So, oh, so good idea. Possible. Did you see it in the expo hall? They had a an ex- a sample one sitting right there. Well, I went. I went. I went to go look for it on Monday when they opened the expo hall, uh, and it wasn't there, and I was sad. Uh, and actually, there was two podiums where they said outpost, and there was no one there and nothing there. And I was like, oh, because they're announcing this tomorrow. <laughs> I was still trying <laughs> to get then, it out of the truck at that point. <laughs> and then uh, I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't made it back. Uh, I, the eighty inches tall. I don't know why they didn't just go with a traditional forty-two U rack, which is like seventy-two inches, I believe, if I recall my math correctly. Um, it's because it's on wheels. Oh, uh, it's the wheels. But you don't want the wheel like once you're in position, you don't want to you want to lock the wheels or even remove the wheels if possible. I know it weighs two tons. I mean. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of data centers like Colos won't let you keep wheels on. Yeah, you don't leave so. the you don't leave the wheels on. <laughs> <laughs> wheels do not stay on. Yeah, breaks the floor elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, also the wheels probably are not eight inches tall. They'll kill somebody in an earthquake. Rolling around. <laughs> All right, well, oh, come on. They're not going to put little furniture rollers on. These are going to be decent-sized wheels to, to handle that kind of weight. That's true. That's true. We're not talking about the, uh, you know, the office mini-fridge or the office kegerator. <laughs> I, did, I did visit an Intel data center actually one time that was on wheels, but they had a special locking device that would lock the wheels in place. Yeah. Uh, because when Intel would do the, do the chip-out and the tape-out and all that, they would... You know, basically use the latest version of the CPUs. They do the tape out on the next gen of the CPU. And then, basically, they order all new cabinets and they roll all those cabinets out and roll all new cabinets back in <laughs> for the new chip fab. Uh, so, I mean, I guess I guess the, the reason not to use wheels is because all that weight's going to be on four very small points on the floor, versus mm-hmm. spreading the weight out across the entire service area of the uh, bottom of the cabinet. So, how, how does that price compare with uh, you know just regular on demand? Yeah, someone would have to do the math. Yeah. Uh, it is it is more expensive. Oh, sure, yeah. uh, it's not crazy more expensive. It's actually very reasonable for what it is. Um, I mean, you have to factor in the enterprise support too if you don't have that, which is you know, minimum fifteen thousand a month. Um, plus power. Yeah, yeah. Plus power and cooling. cooling. So, and the space if you're in a colo. So, I mean, I think there's a premium to it, but I think it's a premium that might be worth it for many many companies not to have to worry about. This. Especially the fact that you can buy this um, on a monthly fee without having to pay up front. Um, you know, for a startup or somebody who's who's trying to do something special with this, that's fifteen thousand a month for a rack that could probably run several hundred instances is not a bad price. I assume there's a commitment of twelve months or something. Uh, I haven't seen any long term commitment requirements yet, but I, I do think you know if you're a startup that you're doing a business, then yes, that'd be a problem. <laughs> if you're a startup, you should mind. be using on demand pricing from the local region. <laughs> well, I mean, you should be, but if you're you know dealing with uh, you know, so have a very sensitive DoD type contract work that you can use on a data center. Maybe this works for you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can see some use cases. That's all. Yeah, get some workloads close to a specific data set that isn't moving to the cloud yet, but you want to standardize and get everything over to your uh, your AWS uh, infrastructure as code standard. Moving on to uh, Jonathan's uh, Transit Gateway here. Uh, you can build global networks and centralized monitoring using the new Network Manager. This includes new features for Transit Gateway, including the Transit Gateway for interregion peering, 
accelerated site-to-site VPN, which is a lie and what they call it, and Amazon Transit Gateway Network Manager, um, all for the Transit Gateway to help you simplify that. The uh, Transit Gateway Network Manager is a pretty great visualization of your your global network uh, through Transit Gateway. And then the accelerated site VPN is not what it sounds like. Uh, it's just basically the VPN through the Anycast network. Uh, and then the Transit Gateway for Energy Peering is uh, the big sweet spot here, Jonathan. Yeah, actually, I'm so glad we did finish our implementation of Transit Gateway yet because the inter-region peering is going to make things so much easier. <laughs> Instead of having to egress the traffic out into a VPC and then you know, tunnel it ourselves across regions and back into the gateway system again. That's pretty cool. And, uh, and the, the, um, the network manager is neat. I hope they continue to add features to that because it would be great to model um, you know, traffic flows. So you can, you yeah. can basically say, you know, can, I, can I get from here to here? Yes or no? What I was disappointed at was that the uh, it's nice to see multicast over Transit Gateway. It's only supported in one region right now, and um, and I, I don't believe they have plans to make it cross-region at this point. Not yet. But the uh, inter-region peering, way to go. Yeah, definitely. Now, if, only, if only they'd just give you a click button like GCP does to deploy, <laughs> the, to, to to deploy your network in multiple regions and just get, configure, this, configure the ranges for me, configure the VPCs for me, plumb it all up together and just, yeah, get it done. So that is, that is the most impressive demo that Google can give you if you've been on the Amazon side for a while. It's like, show me how to set up a VPC globally. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's like four clicks. And it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah, I think a Terraform module incoming, which will just give you that out of the box. Yeah, sure. It makes sense that module would do it perfectly. All right. The Amazon Compute Optimizer is a customized resource optimization service. Uh, this allows you to choose the right instance type, because you know this can be challenging at times. Uh, this service helps you optimize compute resources using machine learning techniques to analyze the history of resource consumption on your account and make well-articulated and actionable recommendations tailored to your resource usage. Uh, and the AWS Compute Optimizer is integrated into the organization, so you can see this globally across all of your accounts um, or individually in an account. Uh, so I can now say the machine learning told me to make your server smaller, Mr. Developer. I was going to say, another service that the developers can completely ignore when choosing their instance site. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be neat? I mean, I, I know on um, VMware, for, for a long time, you've been able to dynamically add CPUs or, or disable CPUs in VMs at runtime without actually having to stop the, the instances, at least for Linux and for later Windows releases. Wouldn't it be cool if a tool like this could actually just in real time analyze the resources you had allocated to your deployments? And if you didn't need those eight cores right now, take those four cores away, give them to somebody else, reduce the price and, um, and run like that and then increase it again as the load average goes up or whatever. I think we'd, it, it, this is like a step right there in the right direction of really dynamic compute. They, uh, they do have that capability for dedicated hosts, uh, and that's for licensing reasons. Mm-hmm. They have that ability to turn stuff off, but yeah, it's not dynamic in any way. Yeah. That's one of, this is one of the larger features of some of the uh, cloud management tools that may no longer be needed. Yeah, it's really one thing that's missing from um, CloudWatch metrics is, is memory utilization because it's so hard to get that from outside the instance, especially in Linux mm-hmm. with using big disk caches and things like this out of all the spare memory. So if they could if they could figure out a way to get memory metrics into something like this so that we could really be, be realistic about what was in use and what wasn't, that'd be great. I mean, the SSM agents have memory as part of their default install now, so I think you're getting closer to that. All right, the uh, VPC ingress routing, uh, this simplifies integration of third-party appliances. 
Uh, the new VPC networking routing primitives allow you to route all incoming and outgoing traffic to who and from an IGW or GVW to a specific ENI. Uh, you can configure your VPC to send all traffic to the EC2 instance before traffic reaches your business workloads. Uh, these instances typically run network security tools, inspector blocks, which is network traffic, such as an IDS or IPS, um, or a firewall, or perform other network traffic inspection before relaying the traffic to other EC2 instances. Um, so this is uh, something that security teams have wanted for quite a while. Um, I just hope the vendors can stand up to boxes that can actually handle the load. And right now it's only a single ENI, uh, so there is no capability to uh, have multiple boxes yet. I just think it's funny that it says ingress routing when it's ingress and egress in the announcement. Yeah, it's a little weird. But I think it's because it's coming through an IGW or GVW versus the NAT. That's why they call it ingress. Well, no, I'm I'm just trying to think through like the the ingress egress routing thing because we've always had like egress from a specific ENI, but I'm trying to figure out like I mean other than there's you're just going to put a single box that's going to do the traffic inspection and hopefully that thing doesn't fall down. Yeah, but, yeah <laughs> like, I don't I don't think this is a good production uh, use yeah. case yet. I think this is a, a early day announcement that will get better when it gets uh, like a network load balancer capability yeah. to make sure you don't you know kill your whole network with one device. I mean, would you, yeah, could you do this like uh, passively? So you send all your traffic through the CNI, but then do traffic mirroring for all the inspection to get through capacity well, constraints. That, like, you can yeah. do that already. This is a this is a security ask that I've seen many security people say they want to have this capability. So, can this you do traffic mirroring incoming from an IGW? I don't know if you can. It, as long as it's crossing the VPC, you can you can replicate that traffic to uh, to any place you want it to go. Because as long as the traffic passes your, I mean, you won't get it from the IGW directly, but you'll get it from once it leaves the IGW and it's going to your EC2 or ALB or NLB, you get that traffic. Yeah, you could. You're right. Yeah, the article is pretty much very clear on the fact it's only ingress traffic. So anything that goes out through the internet gateway or out through that gateway and then the internet gateway is not passing through this device. It's only for incoming traffic, mm. which is really only 25% of the problem because 75% is data loss, which is traffic going out right. yep. steps, yes. in the right, steps in the right well, direction well I presume I mean, TCP is obviously bi-directional communication so pre presumably if the, if the traffic was initiated from outside you would think they would be able to inspect both directions of the flow for connections that were established from outside to in rather than inside out I would, I, I would expect that too yeah. but I don't know for sure Alright, moving on to databases uh, the new Amazon managed Apache Cassandra service uh, managing database at scale is, of course, never easy. And one of the options to store, retrieve, and manage large amounts of structured data includes key value and tabular formats is Apache Cassandra. Uh, now in open preview, uh, the Managed Cassandra service, or MCS for short, is a scalable, highly available, and managed Cassandra-compatible database service. Uh, Amazon MCS is serverless, so you pay only for the resources you use, and the service automatically scales tables up and down in response to application traffic. Uh, there's no limits on the size of the table or the number of items, and you do not need to provision storage for this. And all customer data is encrypted at rest by default. Uh, pricing is $1.45 per million write requests, uh, $0.29 cents per million read requests, and storage is $0.30 cents per gigabyte per month. I don't care how much it costs. All I, all I heard is I never have to support a global Cassandra ring yeah. ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was uh, my takeaway on this one as well. Uh, it's interesting. Every, every reInvent they've, I've been to so far, they've announced a new, new uh, database technology. So hopefully next year we get the real uh, Amazon managed Mongo service <laughs> instead of DocumentDB with MongoDB compatibility. So. What's left after that? I mean, I guess. I think after that, you, there's really nothing left. It's Oracle. So. <laughs> 
Maybe they, maybe they go into the really abstract ones, like the Amazon Manage Voldemort database. <laughs> D-base 3 support from AWS, yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good, though. Uh, definitely don't. I'm happy not to manage Cassandra. So. Uh, the next one is a great one for uh, RDS and Lambda. This is the Amazon RDS proxy, now in preview. Uh, this is a fully managed proxy for highly available databases uh, for RDS. Many applications, including those built on modern serverless architecture, can open a large number of database connections or frequently open and close connections. The RDS proxy sits between your application and its database to pool and share established database connections, improving database efficiency and application scalability. And in case of a failure, RDS proxy automatically connects to a standby database instance while preserving connections from your application and reduces failover times for RDS and or Aurora. Yay! Yeah. Yes, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a really great it's one. Such a chore, especially when the application, uh, you know, Java, for instance, caches DNS for way longer than it should, unless you specifically include command line parameters, so it, to turn that feature off. So, yeah, I mean, applications that can transparently switch to failover databases instead of having to actively realize there's a problem and then switch to something else in the in the set. That's fantastic. It's so cool. Well, I think this is an acknowledgement that the uh, the data API they came up with for Aurora, while it's super awesome, that requires refactoring, <laughs> where this Lambda uh, proxy is much better for a lot of people. It's just using your same database driver you've always used. You don't have to think of anything differently about your data structure, uh, but you still get the reliability of what that data API really gave to you. Was it which, app, which databases was this for? Was this for all of those? All RDS databases. Oh, wow. That's cool. And uh, they, they, they announced this actually at a serverless thing, but they were very clear that while it's very focused at serverless, you can use this for any any application going to the RDS database. Mm. And, and we should, definitely. All right, moving on to the security section here. Uh, Amazon, introducing the Amazon Detective. Uh, this is a new service in preview that makes it easy to analyze, investigate, and quickly identify the root cause of potential security issues or suspicious activity. With this unified view, you can visualize all the details and context in one place, identify the underlying reasons for the findings, drill down to relevant historical activities, and quickly determine root cause. And if only Andy Jassy had mentioned this on stage. <laughs> I would have had that point, and I would have had victory on the, on the draft. I mean, this is really neat. A lot of people working in Amazon aren't security experts, and so you have all these tools now that you know, will basically identify a compromise or anomalous behavior. And then if you know you don't have a security team that can go off and capture all the forensic data, um, you know this is great. There's a service where they can actually figure out what it was and what happened and figure out what what got accessed or not, or or maybe exonerate. You know there wasn't actually a thing. So this is. This isn't cool. This is a very nice thing to have if you don't have a security team at your disposal. The uh, Amazon Security Hub is now integrating with that new Amazon Identity and Access Management Access Analyzer. Uh, this is a, a nice a quick fix uh, for visualizing that to your security hub. You're a one-stop shop for all things security. Uh, so we won't talk about that one too much. And then the next one is the new Amazon Nitro Enclaves. Uh, this was highlighted uh, in Warner's keynote, but it was announced on Tuesday. Uh, the Nitro Enclave enables customers to create isolated compute environments to further protect and secure processes, highly sensitive data such as PII, healthcare, financial, and intellectual property data within their EC2 instance. To summarize this down is uh, we didn't trust the network, we didn't trust the, the storage, we didn't trust uh, the hypervisor, and so now we don't trust the system admin either. Right. <laughs> so now you, can, now you can make sure that the application code is exactly the code that you provisioned uh, to the system and that no one has modified the business processes to potentially man the middle attack uh, your PI or healthcare data. 
and you can guarantee that the system is running the code that you said it should be with your signatures, uh, and it's all handled in uh, silicon versus in the CPU. So that's a pretty great feature. So this is a mutable environment on steroids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. And you can you can group them with your instances. So some instances have access to the enclave, and some instances on the same host do not. It's an interesting concept. It is. I'm curious to see um, some real use cases with it. It's still a little early days for it. Um, but I, I'm super excited to read some white papers and some blog posts about how people are using enclaves to make something even more secure than it already was. Yeah. It's kind of like a sidecar concept but for VMs. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, yeah. Well, speaking of sidecars, we are moving on to containers. So that's a perfect yep. segue. <laughs> Uh, a couple of little things here to mention. Uh, Amazon Fargate Spot instances are now generally available, so if you are running Fargate, you can get your price down even further with a Spot. And then the EKS preview of ARM-based uh, EC2 instances is available, so if you want to run ARM containers, uh, that's a capability now you can do an EKS. But the big announcement that we've all been waiting for is the Amazon EKS on AWS Fargate is now generally available. Customers no longer have to worry about patching, scaling, or securing a cluster of EC2 instances to run Kubernetes in the cloud. Using Fargate, customers define and pay for resources at the pod level, and this makes it easy to right-size resources, utilization for each application, and allow customers to clearly see the cost of each pod. Uh, there are some limitations today, including a maximum of 4 vCPU and 30 gigs of memory per pod. Uh, there's no support yet for stateful workloads, uh, and you cannot run daemon sets, privileged pods, or pods that use host network or host port, and only the ALB is supported today. But as a first release for this, this is great. Yes. No more Kubernetes. 4 vCPUs. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. That's tiny. <laughs> It starts there, and it goes up from there, Jonathan. Oh, oh, that's terrible. How, but also, how is this not one of our picks for, for a prediction? Yeah, that was my only comment. Like, what a missed opportunity for you guys. I thought I just thought it was so obvious that it had to come that I didn't... I, I thought someone else would pick it, and then I was in the third place. I should have totally grabbed it. Yeah, I was going to say, so you thought it was obvious that they were going to announce it, and the game was to predict the announcement. <laughs> I don't know. I just, felt like, I just felt like it was too easy. I felt like it was too easy, and I, I wanted more of a challenge, and so I didn't pick it for that reason. But. Ah, uh-huh. This sounds like, you know, uh, excuses after the fact. Or, uh, or the time I had forgotten about it. So. <laughs> in fact, I think we talked about it in the, in the run-up to the draft, that we thought that it might be on the thing, but then we all forgot to do it. I think I picked it, and Jonathan cut it out. <laughs> that's, that's not true. Of the raw audio. <laughs> but, but it was mentioned in the episode of the week before, and I listened to it the day we did the draft, and I was like, oh, yeah, EKS, I should mention that. But I said, oh, but Jonathan's already going to grab it, and I didn't. That's what happened, so. Uh, the next couple are kind of linked to each other. Uh, this is the Amazon ECS Capacity Provider and the Amazon ECS Cluster Autoscaling, uh, now available. Uh, capacity providers are a new way to manage compute capacity for containers. Uh, Amazon ECS and Fargate capacity providers are provided automatically in all things such as balancing a task across Fargate Spot and Fargate uh, EC2. Uh, for ECS, on EC2 users, a capacity provider consists of a name, an autoscaling group, and a settings for managed scaling and managed termination protection. Uh, this all feeds into the cluster auto-scaling, which uses the capacity provider to automatically scale your cluster up or down based on the needs of reservations, measure the total percentage of cluster resources needed by all ECS workloads in the cluster, including existing workloads, new workloads, and changes in the workload size. This is something that's been missing for quite a while. Like, if you you have application auto-scaling, which you can tie into your ECS service, which will scale your number of containers, but that only works if you have available EC2 under the hood. And apparently this is probably how Fargate's been doing it on ECS all along because they're just sort of like saying, these are already available in your Fargate deployments. Um, So it is sort of interesting. But really what it's providing here is a metric in CloudWatch that's 
that's not just your running capacity and reservation. It's also the workloads that are pending in flight. And so when you update a deployment, it'll it'll upgrade that metric and you can have more intelligent scaling actions based on that. But then it's also providing, you know, rules for, to trigger scaling that are a little bit more native to containers in the ECS service than your your application auto scaling or your auto scaling group. And so this is going to really help people that have to run their ECS workloads in a dynamic and want them to scale up and down. The only thing this is really missing is the fact that you can't take a Fargate workload and scale between uh, that and your EC2 workload where it makes sense. And so I think that's that's kind of a miss just because of the way they've they've sort of structured their ECS clusters and some of the terminology on here. But this is really great for a lot of use cases. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely my, my feature question is to run um, either spot instances or reserved instances for a local cluster and then scale up to Fargate, burst up to Fargate when you need to. But it's coming. I'm sure it's coming. Yeah, this, this announcement makes me a little bit nervous that it's not coming because I, I, I just feel like it's such a obvious thing that this would empower that it's not and makes me think there's some sort of limitation that's a forcing function. But hopefully I'm wrong. I like to be wrong. Well, I guess with the the new ALB uh, weighted sets, we could actually, you know, as we realize we're reaching scale, maximum scale in, the, in our EC2 cluster, we could actually provision the Fargate services on the back end and then start shifting traffic over to Fargate with, uh, with the uh, ALB. Uh, yeah. Mm. A little Lambda spackle in the middle. Absolutely, yeah. 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 We love Lambda spackle here at the top. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of Lambda, again, transitions, Jonathan. Fantastic. Uh, moving on to serverless. Uh, so Amazon gifted us with a, a cold start fix a few months back for VPC attachments. Uh, but, you know, everyone always wants, and I've seen a ton of really bad advice on the Internet for keeping your lambdas warm. And so people come up with uh, lots of Rube Goldberg machines where, you know, these lambdas fire on a scheduled basis and they, la- they warm up my lambdas. So when the load comes, I don't have to take the cold start penalty in any way possible. And while Amazon has continued to make cold starts less and less impactful, uh, they have finally succumbed to the demands of the, of the community and have released provision concurrency for Lambda functions. Uh, provision concurrency is a feature that keeps functions initialized and hyper-ready to respond in double-digit milliseconds. Uh, this is ideal for implementing interactive services such as web and mobile backends, latency-sensitive microservices, and synchronous APIs. Uh, when you enable provision concurrency for a function, the Lambda service will initialize a requested number of execution environments so they can be ready to respond to invocations. Uh, this does support uh, dynamic changing this, so you can up, you know, increase it up or down as you want to with five minutes delay. Uh, and this is a great capability. Uh, you can also, uh, you know, if you want to have maybe your normal workloads a thousand, uh, when you hit that thousand on one invocation, it'll still just, uh, provi- you know, it'll run that lambda function as well. Just hit the cold start at that point. Um, so there's a nice way you can balance this out. Uh, but now you have to capacity plan your lambdas, so you're welcome uh, for all those people who love capacity planning. Sounds like a server. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I wish it would be um, concurrency above current utilization. So if you already have 500 calls a second, then the, the capacity should, the, the, the uh, provision concurrency should add an extra 20 on top of that to handle new requests that, that haven't come in yet. So I suspect that, like we saw with Dynamo, where you know you initially had read and write, and then you know you had to manually set those provisioning capacities. Eventually, they got to dynamic um, scaling with Dynamo, so where it would automatically determined by the load. I assume that that's where this is going to go eventually, where they'll have some machine learning layer on top of this that'll automatically provision concurrency based on the workload, because it's not that hard to get there. 
uh, from where they're at here. And I, I, that's what I suspect will happen is sort of a machine learning will get applied to this sometime in the next year. Well, since uh, no comment on that, odd <laughs> suggestion. I think the problem is we're all getting incredibly tired at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're almost done. We're almost there. We're on the, on the home stretch. Uh, introducing the new Amazon EventBridge Schema Registry, now in preview. Uh, the Schema Registry stores event structures or schema in a shared central location and maps those schemas to code for Java, Python, and TypeScript, so it's easy to use events as objects in your code. Uh, schemas for your event bus are automatically added to the registry when you turn on Schema Discovery, and the Schema Registry makes it easy to find event schema and use events as objects. Okay, swagger for EventBridge. Next. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, the next one is the Amazon Step Functions Express Workflows. Uh, Express Workflows are a new type of step function that cost-effectively orchestrate AWS compute, database, and messaging services at event rates greater than 100,000 events per second. Uh, workflows start automatically in response to events such as HTTP requests via Amazon API Gateway, Lambda, IoT rules, and over 100 other AWS and SaaS event sources from EventBridge. An express workflow is suitable for high-volume event processing and workloads. Oh, we should read this because it sounds really cool. <laughs> uh, it is really cool. <laughs> uh, I, was at, I was at the session where they announced it. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, and so if you're using step functions, one of the trade-offs of step functions is they're very, they're very um, secure in their processing, right? So they, they have a lot of guarantees that are into them, and they have a lot of things that prevent concurrency at high rates. And so what they've done with this express thing is you're basically making a trade-off between that high durability uh, for faster processing. And so you're making that trade-off, but that trade-off allows you to get to several hundred thousand events per second through a pretty high, large, you know, very large set of sub-functions um, much more quickly. So things like uh, a logging pipeline where you want to have different functions based on logging happens, you know, this could actually do that at scale, where before you'd, you struggled to do that with sub-functions in any serious way. Oh, cool. Thanks for reading that for me. You're welcome. Well, actually, I was at the session where they announced it, so I, I heard it right from the, the Lambda PM's mouth. So, uh, Moving on to uh, big data and ML, uh, several Redshift updates, including next-generation compute capabilities for it, data like export and federated querying, and uh, ability to export Redshift data as parquet format uh, to help you do all your big Hadoop big data things. Uh, the big, big announcement around SageMaker, though, is all of the SageMaker stuff. They announced one, two, three, four, five, six, seven new capabilities to SageMaker, uh, starting with the SageMaker Studio, uh, going into the DeepGraph Library, the SageMaker Experiments, SageMaker Autopilot, SageMaker Processing, and the Model Monitor, and the Real-Time Debugger. Uh, this is a death blow to our friends over at Databricks, I think, mm. <laughs> uh, at least on the Amazon platform. Uh, this is a complete end-to-end -end IDE from training through to production with real-time debugging, real-time capabilities, experimentation, and management of your entire system um, all added into SageMaker in a really huge way. Yeah, this really fills out SageMaker as this one-stop shop, you know, big data tool that these teams can use to do, you know, to train models, to find models, what have you. And so I think this... This is, you know, all the feedback I've received from SageMaker in the past was like, yeah, it, it goes off and schedules jobs and runs jobs. It's cool, but then I got to do all this stuff. Data teams now aren't necessarily into doing all that stuff. This can really just automate a lot of their workloads and be provided to them as a turnkey kind of option, which is... Well, as a, as a simple IDE on our desktop, it's, it's even better. So. I mean, GCP announced a feature probably a couple of months ago where we, which would help people understand how the model was producing the answers that it was. Um, and I think these, the, the, some of these features here provide the same type of functionality. It's very important for healthcare because you can't go to the FDA 
and say, yes, we've developed this new process for something and, and uh, it's just magic. We trained it on some data and this is the answers that it gives. You have to demonstrate, you have to be able to explain why and how it comes to the conclusions that it does and how each of the inputs that you provide to the models um, uh, sort of are weighted to, to produce the answers that they give. And so this is, um, I, th I think this is going to have huge healthcare implications for Amazon. Honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. I'm not buying it. Uh, <laughs> in, our, in our other category, we have uh, Amplify data stores, Amplify iOS and Android uh, kits, the new Amazon License Manager. If you're using Connect, uh, which is a pretty great product, a lot of people are using Connect. Uh, there's a new contact lens to help you identify and transcode and determine sentiment uh, for calls in real time, which is pretty great. And then if you're using Chime, you can now, uh, there's 14 regions to make it closer to host to your participants, you know, because latency is an issue in a web share. Uh, but that's all, uh, that's all for Tuesday. Any any other thoughts on Tuesday before we, we move on? No, but this really backs up my feeling. At Tuesday at reInvent, I was feeling like it was a really long week. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it was, for sure. I, and actually, yes. my, my comment about that is I, I know for the last couple of years, Werner's keynote has really been no, there have been no product announcements. To be to be fair, yeah, they've been they've been master classes yeah. in yeah. like databases yeah. or in cloud in general. Or and I've enjoyed those things. I enjoyed the S three explanation last year after that outage, and I enjoyed the EBS explanation this year after that outage. But I I feel like Andy, I feel like they should go back to the old days and they should split some of these announcements between Werner's and Andy's keynotes because. Andy doesn't have enough time to go into these things. And he just kind of rushes through them and it's like, wow, that one, wow, that one, wow, that one, but no, no real details. And so you, you kind of you lose the excitement of the event in just this blast of new stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah, I wish that, I wish a lot of like the Graviton and the Outpost and all that, I wish that was all part of Peter DeSantis's um, keynote, actually, because that's where they talk about hard work typically every year. Yeah, that too, yeah. And they, they I think because they were so excited about it, you know, Andy wanted to announce it, but it, I think it loses some of that because he's not the hardware guy the hardware guy would geek out about it and talk about how amazing it is and you know have that conversation where Andy's not going to have that chat yeah I kind of want Andy to be Andy to be the um, like the why we did these things you know we had these business people we had these customers and the customer talks on stage and and, and I'd be the customer focused guy and I think Peter DeSantis and Werner should be the the tech focused guys uh, they also mixed it up a little bit this year they made Tuesday be uh, Andy's keynote day and uh, Wednesday be the partner summit and it used to be reversed so the partner summit was on Tuesday and then Andy was on Wednesday and then Werner on Thursday so I think it also made that Tuesday feel much longer than it normally has because we had so much announced on Tuesday which normally would have been announced on Wednesday yeah. I like that though because it, because when we bunched the two key, the two important keynotes um, I mean Peter Santis is probably equally important but less people go to that because it's normally before most people arrived but by having the two the two most important keynotes Wednesday Thursday, it doesn't give much time for sessions on new features. Yep. Um, so by yeah by bunching it by moving it back a day, it kind of Wednesday was was uh, was full of new sessions. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was why they did it, and I think it makes sense because I, th I actually think I was my feedback last year to them in my survey was you need more time for the new stuff to be you know in sessions and that I can get into. So. Yep. Well, they listened. All right, good, good feedback. <laughs> uh, so on the uh, yeah, on the Wednesday, uh, because it was partner summit, there was stuff like marketplace announcements for fee structures and stuff we don't really care about here. Uh, but the most exciting announcement was Amazon Chime Meetings app uh, for Slack is now available. Uh, so you can use Am you can use Slack to start and join your Amazon Chime meeting. And I've already requested for my Slack admin, and I'm super excited for this. 
Since I know you're Slack admin, I can tell you that you're never going to get that. <laughs> I, I'll use it for one thing, and that is uh, weekly or bi-weekly calls with our you know, Amazon team. Because I'm so tired of trying to, trying to run that thing on, on the Mac and have it wanted to update when I want to join a call or not work when I want to join a call. So actually having a button to click in Slack, I'm hoping it's all going to be integrated in, into Slack itself and I won't need these external uh, janky tools that they've been providing. That, that's you're, you're adorable. Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't even integrate with a web browser. I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm hoping. Just give me, give me something. Throw me a bone, man. You can help. <laughs> Nice. Would you like to start the Slack meeting? Yes. Let me open these 27 things on your laptop. It could be worse. It could be like Zoom. Hey, let's just run this local web server to bypass all the security. And hey, let's just leave a huge vulnerability while we're at it. And at the end, would you like to rate our application? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how, was, how would you rate your call? Was it amazing or terrible? Yeah. Uh, Amazon API Gateway 2 is offering you a new, faster, cheaper, and simpler API using HTTP APIs. This is the worst name product I've ever seen. I don't know how you're ever going to Google this <laughs> when you want to find the docs. So I hope it works really well. Uh, but this API gateway announces the HTTP APIs, enabling customers to quickly build high-performance RESTful APIs that are 71% cheaper than REST APIs also available from the API gateway. HTTP APIs are optimized for building APIs that proxy to AWS Lambda functions or HTTP backends, making them ideal for serverless workloads. So this is, this is API gateway without the gateway. It's bizarre. So, I mean, HTTP APIs proxy mode is always supported in API Gateway. So You still have the overhead of CloudFront. You still have the, all these other things where this, this kind of really simplifies the whole structure yeah, of it. Yeah, they've obviously... And it really just puts a firewall in front of your Lambdas. So that's really what it does. Yeah, they've obviously the re-architected the, the, whole, the whole way that it works to reduce the cost by that much. Yeah, yeah. they have to have. Uh, you know, but API Gateway 2 has been around for a while, which is what this is part of, um, but for just for sockets in the past, so... Uh, it's good to see maybe a second feature now on the API Gateway too, but I, I still like to see all of API Gateway get <laughs> re-architected in a big way. So. And then uh, the containers are now allow you to run Windows ECS Windows tasks with Group Managed Service Accounts, or GMSA, uh, on ECS. ECS now supports Windows Group Managed Service Accounts, a new capability that allows ECS customers to authenticate and authorize their Windows containers with network resources using an AD. Uh, and I'm sure, Ryan, you're super excited about this for some reason, so I'll let you talk. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the questions I always get when when I have a new, just doe-eyed Windows.net guy who's like, I want to use containers. They look at me, and they're like, sweet, here you go. Here's a Windows ECS node. You can go launch your thing. They're like, cool, how do I talk to my database? And they just look at me with this blank stare, and I've never really had an answer until now. And so what this allows them to do is through AD and their normal their normal management principles like they're, they're used to doing, they can actually authenticate their Windows containers to uh, other resources in Active Directory. And so this is, uh, you know, it's it's a real enablement if you're, if you're using Windows containers. And so this is just one less thing that will get in the way of that for Windows workloads. Will your container join the domain? <laughs> so your node joins the domain, uh, and then your your ECS container can use that to... Uh, uses the GMSA to attach right. to your domain join. So which type of workloads should be run on Windows containers? It's mostly so that you can... Like, if you think about... So I see Windows containers as being a real benefit for, like, building software, right? Like... Typically, building Windows software requires this giant, beefy box that's constantly living on a domain that just sits there sucking up money. 
And so now if you start getting into like ECS and, and Windows containers and these things, it can, it can start being leveraged dynamically. And so the, these user credentials now are another, another thing that can be leveraged dynamically. Like you can keep this parameter in the parameter store. As that container comes up, it can then use that for authentication. And so I think it's more along those loads, whereas you can combine several workloads onto one instance, or you can scale the instance, where it's just w- making Windows a lot more flexible than it used to be. All right. Well, that gets us uh, through Wednesday and uh, to Thursday, which is the final day of the keynote. Uh, so Werner uh, this year gave us a fantastic talk, uh, first covering Nitro in a really heavy-duty way, which I think is only a... Uh, attack on Mr. Larry Ellison, who tried to claim that Gen 2 cloud at Oracle is the only secure cloud, uh, and he then schooled them with Nitro and how awesome Nitro is instead. And then he, uh, he jumped into Fargate and Firecracker with a great demo by Claire Ligori, who's a principal software engineer at AWS. We talked about her in the past. Some of her articles have been really great. Uh, and then he talked about uh, really a master class in distributed system design, uh, introduced to us the concept of Fazalia, uh, which is millions of tiny databases that run EBS, uh, with some really great understanding of how those kinds of things, and uh, kind of wrap this all up with his idea of Industry 4.0. Uh, and really, this is you know the next age of where we're going. And so to do help you, they are building and releasing the Amazon Builders Library. And as Dr. Warner Vogel likes to say, there is no compression algorithm for experience. And so they are releasing to you uh, a set of white papers or documents about how they've done certain distributed operations at Amazon and gives you kind of a little bit of a picture behind behind the curtain. So things like shuffle sorting and how they do, which is what they use in EBS to make sure that they don't lose data um, at you know 0.00003% loss rates. Uh, CICD capabilities and why they use that. Uh, things like avoiding insurmountable queue backlogs, uh, unlike the show notes we just went through. Uh, you know, things like that are all documented in pretty length uh, with you know some of the best principal engineers at Amazon authoring these documents, and I assume they'll keep adding to this library over time. Uh, but if you ever ask the question, how does Amazon do this? Uh, there may be an article out there on the Builder Library that will help you understand a little bit better how they do things. And it's awesome. <laughs> I've, I've started going, I've started working my way through these things. I read the first one I read was um, the workload isolation with shuffle sharding from Colm. And that was that was awesome. Um, and I think what I'll have to say about this is Google also released a lot of white papers, but they're very, very um, mathematical. They're not for normal person to consume, and they're not customer facing. You know, you, you can't you can't read one of those. Well, most people can read one of those, and then and then know how to implement something um in a as, as a production workload whereas these papers from amazon are really they take the technology they take the mathematics and they explain exactly how you use those things to do these things and it's much more accessible for people to to deploy um these workloads at scale now with this type of documentation really impressed yeah i i, I when i read through the one i've gotten through so far and i signed up for the notifications on the future ones and i'm excited about those um well, you know, some of it is lacking a little detail. Like, I'd like some more specifics, but I realize that they did that so they can keep them consumable. Um, but it really does focus on the why they made a lot of decisions and, you know, how they got there. And I think that's really important when you're looking for architectural inspiration on when you're building a thing. And so, like, it is really, truly nice to have something that's that's approachable and easily to consume versus a straight scientific white paper that does get into they can be a little dry and, and 
vary based on science. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially when you talk yeah. about things like um, leader elections in in, uh, in clusters. It's the, the, the Google version of the paper is very, very complex. It, re- it relies on you understanding lots of, uh, lots of technical terms, whereas this one doesn't. I mean, it refers to things, but it doesn't require that you understand that stuff to understand how to implement this type of system. So prerequisite in computer science, not necessary. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's, that's a very fair way to put it. Um, yeah, I, have, I started to read through the truffle sorts. I have not finished yet, but I, I did look forward to uh, reading through all of these. They all look really great and pretty awesome. Now, of course, uh, someone on Twitter very quickly pointed out, like, just because this is the way Amazon doesn't, doesn't mean that you need to do it this way or that you should do this. <laughs> Remember that you are not Amazon, <laughs> and so do not take what they take as, what they're saying as gospel because their scale is different than your scale. I almost guarantee it. Uh, and so do keep that in mind as you're going through these. Like they, they are really great concepts, and you should apply them as appropriate, but don't don't take them as gospel. They're not the Bible <laughs> uh, in any way for your organization. I mean, that's a fair point. But but if these are the principles on which Amazon built their services, they're certainly working for Amazon. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you take some of these processes and you try to apply it to your startup, <laughs> like you're going to try to do the complexity of shuffle sorts when you haven't got product market fit, uh, that's a bad plan. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I think that's my point is, you know, they, they are really good concepts and I think you should know them, you should consider them and you should use them when it's appropriate to do so when you have the need. But, you know, don't, don't just think you can go copy these 12 articles and you can be the next Amazon because that's, that's not what this is. This is how they did it. This is their knowledge. If you were to start Amazon all over, you know, as a brand new company, they would not build it the same way they built it the first time. I'm sure they would. No, but I, I think for, if, if architects, software architects, or architects or infrastructure architects had known these things that Amazon are now publishing years ago when they were building their services, they would have built things differently. And I think uh, having having new products developed with these things in mind, you know, we don't make the same mistakes that Amazon's already made. Is what they're saying. Don't don't have problems with queue backlogs. Don't have problems with distributed systems, um, or uh, you know, or, or failed rollbacks and things. This is how this these are these are the pains that we went through, and this is how we solved them. They don't want you to go through the same thing. So there's a lot of valuable valuable information, even if the scale doesn't really apply to you. It might really help in predictions too. Like I bet the person <laughs> right. who reads more of the library wins the next predictions show. <laughs> it's very very possible. Well, that is everything for this week. That was a fantastic reInvent recap. Uh, very long, very lengthy. Uh, how about you guys? Any other thoughts from reInvent uh, that you want to talk about? Um, you know what? I was really happy to see the EC2 snapshots feature. Was that a, was that a reInvent thing or was that a pre-reInvent thing? I think it was a pre-reInvent thing. We didn't thing. talk about that, but we should have done. That, no, we can catch it up on a future week. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, is there anything else that we, we missed maybe out of this list that, that came up over the week? Um, I mean, I, I tried to catch everything, but there was so much. Uh, there's a possibility I missed something, so you know, I, I apologize if I did. Um, the replay party was uh, pretty good this year, I thought. Uh, you know, same venue as last year. Uh, the bands were a little bit more eclectic. I'm not sure that I was excited about Anderson Pack as the keynote or the headliner. I guess um, I would have preferred Foo Fighters, but uh, you know, I think they. Uh, I haven't read the reviews of Intersect Festival, but it sounded like they had. Uh, a pretty good inaugural Intersect Festival afterwards, and so we'll see how that all turns out here in the next few weeks as uh, I'm sure news comes out about it. Yeah, well, I know. I was talking to Ryan, and uh, we're both kind of audiophiles, I would say, to some degree, and we were both so impressed in the in the quality of the sound in the tents this year. Um, typically, like, the bass is too loud, it hurts your ears, it distorts things, it's, it's, it's pretty crappy, but this year the sound was amazing. 
and I think it's probably testimony to the the more professional um, event organisers organisers they brought in to run the Intersect Festival. But um, great sound show, amazing light show. Took some cool pictures. You can see them on my Instagram feed or I linked them on Twitter too. Well, uh, Ryan, thank you again for joining us and uh, helping out here recap the show since you were with us for the whole week. Uh, where can they find your musings on AWS? I am still on the most boring Twitter feed in the in existence um, at ryron01, and uh, maybe I'll branch out to a second platform if you know I get up to like fifteen followers. Fifteen followers! Wow, wow, that's impressive. Uh, Peter, any any final thoughts uh, from you on re- reinvent or replay or any of the the fun activities of the week? Uh, I'm just gonna say. I love Top Golf. I, I do love Top Golf as well. It's my, it's a highlight of the trip. It was. <laughs> it was pretty cool. I, I wish I hadn't overdone it the first time we went because the second time we went really sucked. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's that's always good fun together. And I think maybe next year, uh, I, I, I considered naming this episode like retrospective because we, you know the re colon thing. But whatever. Um, I think maybe next year, but for our advice for for reinvent, we'll perhaps talk about not leaving Vegas on the Friday because I saw those terrible lines for security at the airport. Um, on Friday and Saturday was actually really good. Just fly or just fly Jet Suite X. Yeah, you do that too. And we really should have gone back to the room. <laughs> yeah, we really, we really should have gone back to the room. Pretty much every yeah. night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I am still, I'm still in sleep detriment from this point. I had to still catch. That up. is the problem with, with with going in a group. You know, if you're by yourself, if you want to go back to the room, you go back to the room. If there's two people, it's like the little devil on your shoulder whispering. If there's three people, you've got no chance. <laughs> That is the week in cloud. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at the hashtag thecloudpod. See you guys next week. Bye.